The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his way and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. That's verses 13 through 19 of Psalm 145, which is the psalm for today. So we are a week out now from Easter, and and we can celebrate still with joy the coming of Jesus uh, back from the dead, the resurrection being the central uh, act in all of human history, where God comes in and intervenes and and changes the destiny of all who believe in his son, changes the way they think about life, changes the way they think about death, changes the way they think about everything. Because we know that death is not final, that there is life beyond the grave, there's life beyond the end of this kind of life, that there's resurrection for us because of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's almost impossible to go back from that, to go, once you know that thing, (laughs) that resurrection, it's almost, or should be at least, impossible, holding that thought in mind always, to go back to a mindset of fear, because we, we need fear nothing anymore. And that's what John says in First John is, is that perfect love casts out fear because there's no fear of judgment anymore. There, there's not a fear of does anything happen after this. There's only resurrection for those who believe in Jesus because he was resurrected. So he now intercedes for us. And in John's gospel, I've been, you know, I've, I've preached this, I've taught this, I've blogged it and everything else. And when we get to that gospel lesson today, you know, it, I don't think I've ever paid attention so much to how many times Jesus promises that anything that's asked in his name will be given to us. I think, you know, we can take that for granted and we can take it like a genie, but, um, but I think it has a whole lot more to do with the absolute power and authority in Jesus. Um, doesn't mean everything that we want will be done. But I believe that it, that it should cause us to consider the way we pray in a different way and, and to come with humility and boldness all at the same time before his throne because he can do anything. But the reality is, is that, that we don't know <laughs> what his plan is. And so I want to discuss those two things being kind of the primary themes for the day. The Isaiah passage, Isaiah 25, 1-9, begins with uh, worship. O Lord, you're my God, I'll exalt you. I will praise your name, for you've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And then it kind of moves in a weird direction, right? For you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. But he's not talking about Jerusalem. He's speaking of the enemies of the people of God. <clears throat> and he, he believes in, in, in this praise that... That will become, for the nations, a place of praise for God because they'll see their own ways and they'll see the power of this God. In the same way, I think that he's sort of referring back to um, Egypt 
and that they would glorify God as well. And that was the point of, of uh, what God said was is that they, the, the Egyptians would see the glory of God. They would see his power in his bringing up from Egypt, his people, the ones who were slaves in that place, the ones who were poor and needy. And so that's the promise that Isaiah makes here is, is that, that you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. There's this great promise that Isaiah sees in the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of the people, and he sees um, sort of, you know, the, the original promise was a land flowing with milk and honey, and so Isaiah sees here in this passage on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. It's a promise not just to the people of God in Israel, but it's a veil spread over the nations, the, that, that veil, that covering that's cast over all people. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And that's a powerful statement, and it's happened. That work has been done. It's an amazing thing to even begin to imagine that God has already done the work of swallowing up death forever, and we live in the aftermath of that work, awaiting the swallowing up of death completely in order that eternal life might begin for those who are in Christ Jesus. And our desire should be for all who know that. It's like Isaiah's desire here is for all. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. But his desire, Isaiah's, is for all people to see that very thing and to experience that life and to experience the joy of knowing that death has been swallowed up forever. It's a wonderful image, I think, that he uses there. And so we move from there into the John passage, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples and says, He has said, a little while you'll see me no longer, and then and again, in a little while you will see me. And then they're just so confused by that. Is he going to hide? You know, are we playing some sort of a game? What's happening here? Is he going to go somewhere else and then come back, and he's going to take a break from us? And they don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus says, you know, hey, I know what you're saying among one another, and he, and he says that, that you're going to weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he uses the image of a woman who is sorrowful because her time has come, and she's going to have to go through the excruciating pain of childbirth. And remember, that all goes back to Genesis. It's the curse that's on humanity, and so Jesus speaks about that curse. But then after she's delivered the baby, he says she no longer remembers the anguish for a joy that a human being has been born into the world. You know, we've sort of lost that sense in so many ways. There's so many couples that are choosing no longer to have children or bring children into this world of pain and all that kind of stuff. And so it's it's a sorrowful thing that we as Christians are not um, taking the commandment to be fruitful and multiply in that way more seriously as well. Um, it, it's imperative frankly, for us to allow God to do his work in bringing children into the world we were created in such a way that would be. 
but he says, you will have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And this reminds me of the hymn that we sing uh, in, in many churches on Easter, and that hymn is, we know that Christ is raised and dies no more, and it's, it's a, it talks about our despair being turned to blazing joy. It's, it's a powerful thing, and I'm going to put a link to it in the, um, in the description here because I know not everybody knows that song, but it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful song. It's probably one of the, my two or three favorite Easter hymns. It was only written in 1969, and it's interesting because it was written, in fact, um, by, in order to, to say something about test tube babies um, and, and why have we moved in, in that direction. It was a really fascinating thing, if you want to look it up. I'm, I'll put a link over there to the uh, article that I read about that. But then he promises this, that after this joy is gone, in that day you'll ask nothing of me because you'll go straight to the Father. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. And that's the reason that we pray in the name of Jesus. It's because he told us to do that. Because he, he basically said, here, here's, the, here's the, the password that will allow you to come directly to the Father. And you come in my name, then you will be heard by the Father. And he says, I've told you all these things in figures of speech until now, but now you know, I'm going to begin to tell you things um, plainly. And then he speaks again of, in that day you'll ask in my name. I don't say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It's a powerful statement to know that we can have direct access to the Father in the name of Jesus. He's, he's giving us his card, right? I mean, um, he, he's giving us all the access that he has to the Father and, and inviting us to do that. And there, that's an awesome responsibility. It should fill us with awe. It should fill us with fear. It should fill us with reverence when we come before the throne. And then they said, ah, now we understand. You're speaking to us plainly. We get it. We get it. Nobody needs to ask anything else. And, he's, and then he asked the question that I tell you is the central question of John's gospel and the point of John's gospel, remember, was to say that I've written these things so that you might believe and by believing you might have life in his name. So Jesus answers them when they said, oh, we understand everything now. He says, do you believe now? Well, let me tell you, fellas, behold, the hour's coming, indeed it has, when you'll be scattered each to his own home and you'll leave me alone. You who said that we believe you came from God, you're, you're about to doubt that. And you're about to be scattered and run away. And he says, yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. It, it's not cynicism, it's reality. Um, belief waits for resurrection. They believe certain things, but it's a contingent belief. We believe as long as, but when the trial came, when that deep persecution came, and when the reality of the cross came, belief fled. The resurrection made it certain, and the Holy Spirit impressed the seal of all that. So that's what we see in the Acts lesson, right? It begins with, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. That's what they're seeing, boldness. Jesus is saying, you're not going to be very bold very soon. Within the next 24 hours, in fact, within the next three hours, there's not going to be any boldness. There's only going to be fear. 
But now, here, after the resurrection and after the day of Pentecost, the Sanhedrin, the ones who tried Jesus, see the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceive that they were uneducated common men. They're just nobodies, right? I mean, these are fishermen from Galilee. Who do they think they are that they would proclaim in the temple, that they would do these things? And they said, when they saw these things, they were astonished. And then the important thing is they recognized they had been with Jesus. They're his disciples. They're those guys. And then the most important word in the passage comes in, but... <laughs> but seeing the man who was healed standing behind, beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's the reason, remember, that they wanted to kill Lazarus. They wanted to get rid of the evidence of the work that Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. So here they stand. They're trying these men, and think of it in, in the sense of trying them for speaking in Jesus' name. Now they see the man. Well, that, that's indisputable evidence for the defense. Dude's healed. We're told a little later in that passage that, that the people were praising God for all that had happened for the man whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, like the blind man. I mean, this guy had been crippled his whole life, and he's walking and leaping and praising God. It, it, there's, there's not really anything you can say. And so the, then they said, okay, you guys leave us for a little bit. We're going to have a little private powwow. And the question becomes, what do we do with these dudes? It, you know, this this thing happened that's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But let's warn them so that it won't spread any further among the people. Let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Are you serious? I mean, that's the response. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you have to decide are you speaking for God? Are you claiming to have more authority than God does? For we can't but speak of what we've seen and heard. And then they further threatened them, and they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. And remember, that's what they did with Jesus. They got him alone. They got him away from the people at night. And then they took him and tried him in the kangaroo court in secret. And then they bring trumped-up charges before the people so that they go, oh, so that's what happened. Here, they can't do it. They're not, they're not able to get that private because that man's there. So then they went out and they told their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and then everybody is so excited. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And so they, they're bringing this scripture in, and they're saying, you know, it, here's, here's how it applies, that the Gentiles raged, the people's plotted in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And then they remember this, and they say, yes, that's what happened. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, did this thing. But then they remember the important thing, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They did it, but it was you. This was your plan all along. And it proves back to the Scripture that it was your plan all along. And so they see that they didn't act independently, and they didn't act on their own authority. And if they don't act on their own authority, and it's the plan and the predestination of God, then I don't have to fear that. I don't have to fear it at all. Because it tells me that God's in control of all things. And there's nothing more comforting than that truth except for the resurrection of the dead and the swallowing up of death. And so the people then prayed and asked 
that they be even bolder. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's important. We have to give thanks for it. And we have to look and believe still that God does great things in the world today through prayer in the name of Jesus. I'm hopeful for that very thing in my own life this day, the Saturday after Easter.